So Lori and I have been together for all of her books, but the first book. Um, so I'm really delighted that she is here. Um, the book doesn't publish till Tuesday, but we are doing this event today. So if you get your book additionally signed, you might want to get it dated, which makes it slightly more cool to say that you were here. Right, right? I know what day I'm here. That's okay. <laughs> All right. It'll be good. So I haven't had a chance to drink the toast, so I will do that. Mm. Very nice, Lori. So this is how many Russell and Holmes? This is number 18. Um, plus there's one volume of short stories. So right. depends on whether you count that as a volume or not. But yeah, it's number number 18. So. And you're still keeping it fresh. Who am I to say? <laughs> well, I can say. I mean, I, I, I like them. I have fun with them. So you do. Yeah. Yep. And this one, this one has a lot to do with India and Laurie's late husband. Uh, Noah was actually born in India while it was still under the Raj. And Laurie has traveled to India. So it's sort of fun that you are able to go back and write about what, uh, when, when was Noah born? Noel was born in probably 1920, 22. So this is um, much older than that. Yeah, so this is this is the section. <coughs> the setup of the book is that Russell finds a, a little notebook um, that has um, entries in it in a, um, I in a cryptological code, and she has to um, sit in and, um, and decode it. And it turns out to be more or less journal entries by somebody from the 1830s and so. And, um, and part of that involves when this person who's writing the journal was very young and was taken to India and lived in um, one of the French Indian colonies uh, just north of Calcutta called Chandranagore. And, and so, you know, it was... It was interesting research because, of course, the French, the Franco-Indian colonies were very, very different from the Anglo-Indian colonies. And because they didn't, for one thing, they didn't have, uh, in the 1830s, it would have been the British East India Company. So they would have had <coughs> the French East India Company, which was a whole different thing. So and it was British until 1857 and the Sepoy Rebellion, after which the crown took it over. I think it's wonderful that corporations actually, like, ruled the world. Um, no, they did, you know, for decades. With, I mean, we think today the tech barons are kind of out of control. So it was. Um, and the early stock companies, if you really go back and read about, you know, early financial transactions and all, because the East India Company was a stock company. Yeah, and they basically... They functioned as a government in India. They, they did. They were the government, and it, the fact that they were there to make money had nothing to do with it. So it wasn't until, the, the, the as you say, the country went up in arms um, with some s some really horribly nasty things that happened um, that the that the British government um, stepped in and said, "No, we'll 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 take it from here. Thanks." So All right. So here's a quiz. That's this one reason that. I aced out a, um, a class when I was in graduate school at Northwestern, a historical, I don't remember, history of some kind. Do any of you know how Britain got a toehold in India? How did Britain become established in India? Do you know? Can I I'll give you a clue? It was in 1660-something. 
You mean the, what became the British East India Company? No, rather than the no, I'm talking about. Yeah. No, no, actually, it had to do with um, Charles, this, I think it was Charles II, married a Portuguese princess. I think I have this right. I think it was Charles II, because he never divorced her. Remember, she was a queen that had no children. Anyway, Portugal had already gone to India. They were landed in Goa oh, yeah. and so forth. And so part of the dowry of um, the Portuguese princess who married Charles II, I think this is, um, I mean, this is a long time ago. Come on, guys. It was over 50 years ago when I did this. But anyway, part of her dowry was um, there was a Portuguese stronghold or a Portuguese colony or something in northern India. And so the British established a presence um, there for the crown because it belonged to Charles II. I've always wondered why Charles II didn't divorce Catherine of Braganza, his wife, who, who was never able to produce children. He had bastards littering England, so it wasn't wasn't a problem for him, but it was for her. And I've always wondered if part of it was he didn't want to let go of, of, you know, because it was part of her dowry, right? He did give it back, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why separate from Goa? I mean, it's much more important than a wife. <laughs> exactly. So there was, there was actually a royal presence, but it was the British East India Company, which originally went out to hit the Spice Islands, if I recall, and then wandered in India where they made fortunes, um, those of them who survived it. It was an absolute soup of germs and other stuff, so it's amazing to me how many of them actually lived to become nabobs and come home. Survival of the fittest, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, or the lucky, however you want to look at it. Yeah. So anyway, where are we? We're back in Chandigarh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I found it really interesting to look at... Um, at the differences between, you know, what the kind of India that that I knew when I was there in the 70s and that Noel had known when he was growing up there in the 30s. And um, in, in rural parts of India, there's a remarkably little change um, in uh, over the course of the century. And when you look at what was going on in India in the 1830s as opposed to the 1930s, even then, uh, there was there was an awful lot of similarity there. So, um, but that yeah. So I, I had this is one of those books, and it's funny because I had the last book that I had also had these two timelines that twisted around each other. The Back to the Garden. That one was contemporary, and the 1970s. <coughs> and this one is the 1920s, so 1925, and the 1800s. So uh, the way, I mean, it's an interesting way of telling a story, is to bring, to bring an old section and weave it in with the new one, and you can play with themes and people and influences and all that. So You can, and that's where the zoetropy comes in, not to mention diaries and code. You had a lot of fun with this book, didn't you? Yeah, I can really see it. So, um, right. And the other thing that's really helpful for this book is that Conan Doyle never really gave Sherlock Holmes a background. I mean, we know he had a brother called Mycroft, right? And that's pretty much all, you know, he, he just cut right to the chase with, with writing the stories and didn't bother to do any, like, you know. He was writing, if I remember right, most of it was published for the Strand magazine, right? So they were relatively short. He didn't have a lot of room, you know, to flesh out characters. It was like straight to the plot. Um, so Laurie has... Yeah, there's uh, only four novels that he, exactly. that he wrote. I mean, the first one was a novel, but um, but all the rest of them were, 
and and it it actually was one of the reasons why the Sherlock Holmes series became so incredibly effective financially, is because there you have these short pieces, but they're all tied together. And this hadn't really been done much before until Conan Doyle came along and wrote the set characters. But if you missed a chapter of a series, um, it, you know, it didn't mean that you missed a whole section of a book, which when you're depending on, um, on a monthly serial, um, <laughs> if you miss a chapter, there's a, there's a part in um, the autobiography of... Uh, the um, man who's mentioned in one of the one of my books, um, Sabine Bearing Gold, he writes about when he was traveling with his, uh, as a young person, was traveling with his family in Europe in the winter of whichever year it was, and they had to stay camping at the side of the snow-covered hills near the Rhine River because they were waiting for the next episode of Little Dorrit. <laughs> and the father could not bear to miss the cha the next chapter, so they had to wait for two weeks until it was shipped over from England, and then they could head for. That was Charles Dickens, who was you know, yeah. yeah. So serial publishing yeah. was um, it wasn't like you could just take the book with you. You had to actually yeah. wait for the next yeah. episode, right? But the advantage of Conan Doyle style is that if you missed it, it really didn't affect the whole book. So very true. And he only wrote, if I remember, isn't like one spy story? With the blue, you know, the I, I don't remember all the titles, but the one about the submarine. Sorry? No, but wasn't there the. That's it, the Bruce Partington plants, right, was yeah. sort of a short story. But I mean, mostly he was doing other kinds of, you know, more straightforward yeah. detection. And then, fortunately, you know, or unfortunately, Conan Doyle got really tired. Of Holmes, and so he, you know, sent him over Reichenbach Falls, and thought, "I'm done here." And then, you know, riots ensued. I can occasionally <laughs> sympathize. Yeah, of course you can, right? Which is why we have back to the garden and occasional non-very yeah. Russell Sherlock yeah, Holmes yeah. books, right? <laughs> and so, you know, but that's been a gift for other authors because there is that gap there where we're not entirely. He might have been in Minnesota. He might have been in Bhutan. You know, he could have been anywhere. We see him here. We see him there. We, see, you know, everywhere. Right. Um, but, you know, Laurie, Laurie hasn't done that because the Sherlock Holmes and the Mary Russell books is older. He's, what, 50-something when we first meet him in The Beekeeper's Apprentice, which was 30 years ago. So, and that's the anniversary this year, The Beekeeper's Apprentice, right? Yeah, we're having a lot of celebrations for Beekeeper's Apprentice because it turns 30 this year. So, yeah. Which is very exciting. And yeah. unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, the publisher of The Beekeeper's Apprentice didn't quite get the program, and so the um, copies that I ordered for today are somewhere being manufactured as we speak. Right? I'm really annoyed about that, but I tried. Right? Anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, Conan Doyle. When Conan Doyle is writing about Sherlock Holmes, he's writing very much in the moment with with uh, Doctor Watson for the most part. But he does say that. In, in one of the stories you suddenly learn out of nowhere, and Watson learns out of nowhere, that he has a brother, uh, Mycroft, that he's come from a family of country squires, and that his grandmother was a sister of the artist Vernet. Although he doesn't say which Vernet, and there were dozens of them. So <laughs> so you kind of have to go into your 
into your um, genealogies and figure out which one it would have been about the right age. And that would have been Horace Renee. So but a gift for you for this yeah. book, right? Yeah. So so I I claimed Horace Renee and and ran ran with him and so so that's the that's the home side of things is looking at his background and um, somehow this journal ties into it, but they can't figure out quite how because the you know ni neither of them really know the complete story. This is the the advantage of having two two sleuths working and they're both headed in different directions. Is that the reader knows. <laughs> <laughs> and they're saying, oh, why don't you get in and talk with them? And then, so, eventually they put their heads together and say, ah, maybe, maybe, so. Right, so I haven't asked you this because Lori was part of a family group that we took on the lower Danube. We sailed from the Black Sea to Budapest. And I'm really glad we did it before, you know, the Ukraine and so forth. Actually, one of the best trips that Robert and I ever took was a cruise around the Black Sea when in Sebastopol, we got on a little Russian tour boat and went to visit the Russian Navy. I photographs, which would not work out well today. Probably no. not, no. But anyway, we were able, Laurie and the rest of us, to, um, to sail um, back to Budapest. And then we went to Vienna, and Rob and I went to Hamburg in order to go to the Frankfurt Book Fair, and Laurie peeled off and went to France. Um, right. And so I haven't, you, you, I'm trying to remember how many books, because this book does take place in France, out of Paris, but sort of rural France. Did you research it while you were, or is this a totally different thing? No. Um, when, that was 2018? Yeah. Yeah. So in 2018, when they went this way and I went south, um, I went to um, this, the south of France to research um, mostly. Um, I think I had f I think I had finished um, Riviera Gold. No, I'd finished the Island of the Mad, and was working on Riviera Gold. So that that book is set in the Riviera area and Monaco. We did the Romania part because yeah. you hauled us up, if you remember, into yeah. the. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, we had we had Highlands also of Romania. we had also gone into Transylvania, and that was that was great fun. That was on that trip. Well, it turns out um, that the whole castle thing is a complete con. Well, it, it was fun to go, but yeah. <coughs> but yeah. we did get to see about Rumi Marie of Romania. Yeah, and, and uh, um, I mean that's typical of of the kind of research that you do for traveling um, with with books like this. I mean, sometimes I have. Um, I have a clear idea of well, not clear. I mean, that's that's oh, exaggerating matters, but I have an idea of what I want to do. So that when we went to Japan together, I knew I wanted to write a book set in Japan, and I kind of knew vaguely where-ish, and so that we kind of aimed at some of the things. Right, but and I haven't. I'll, I'll remind everybody that we've had some exciting adventures traveling. We got lost in Shikoku. Um, now. All kinds of other stuff. Lori posed as a famous author to get us into the maid's room that was the only room left in the Hotel Nara, which is where Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth would stay when she went to Japan. And uh, we've had lots of adventures. Yeah. And, and wrote a book. If those of you who have never read... Can't remember the title? Not, uh, <laughs> yes, what is it? Not, we're not in Kansas anymore. Dreaming Toto. Spires. Oh, no, 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 we, no. Dreaming no, Spires was book. the book you wrote, yeah, yeah, right? Dreaming Spies, right. Is, yeah, Dreaming Spies is the novel, but the real classic one was is a book about Japanese toilets 
that Barbara and I wrote. Together. Um, yeah. And I, I installed a Toto toilet as a consequence of this. And you probably, some of you heard me tell this story, but I'll just briefly digress here. We are lost in Shikoku, which is a more rural island of Japan. And things were getting desperate. Lori had falsely told us she learned to speak kanji, but she really hadn't. And, right? And so, you know, eventually we managed to pull up at a ryokan somewhere in Shikoku where there is no English spoken and we're not able, we're not fluent in Japanese. But anyway, they let us in and um, we got to sleep on the floor and Rob and I went out at 11 o'clock thinking we would hit the, you know, one of the baths and it was a little cable car, a little wooden cable car that took us up to the top of the mountain river. And, and they code them, the baths in Japan. So there's red, I think it's blue for, is it blue for women and red for men or the other way around? But then occasionally there's a purple banner, and that means it's co-ed, although it's really rare to have. So at one in the morning, Rob and I are sitting there in the, you know, Japanese, whatever it is, doing all that. But um, what was I going to this? The next day, we we had gotten, I mean, we Oh, realized. no, I was going to tell how we found the, co the Togo. We right? had not seen another human being in about six hours. Yeah, and in Japan, that's kind of a, that's that's worthy of note. So we we come down to this place, and Barbara says, "Oh, look! It's the the hanging bridges. We have the to male go there. and female so, hanging bridges." So I obediently follow the signs and pull up there, and off they go across these damned hanging bridges. And you're not getting me on those things, I tell you. But off they go, and on the other side. Down the other side, we've been in the car a really long time, and on the other side of the male and female hanging bridges, there was a little wooden hut. So Rob and I get to the other side, and I said to Rob, I'm hoping. So I go over, and I open the door. There's, I mean, we are in the wilderness. There is not a soul there, and I open the door of the little wooden hut, and the toilet seat rose to greet me <laughs> with a little thing of music. And, you know, and I thought, if Toto can do this, I said, I'm going to have one. <laughs> It was wonderful, I know. You know, the best adventures when you travel are the things that you didn't plan for. The, you know, you, I mean, these are the things that happen to you when you get lost or whenever, whatever else goes on. Right. But anyway, we digress. Back, back. I, think, I think the reason people come and listen to us is because we digress. Um, no, I think that um, I, all of the books that I write with about the Mary Russell stuff is based on the fact that she travels. Um, this is always a problem when you have a series, isn't it? That how how do you keep the series from just being the same book with different names? Um, and so one of the ways that I have gotten around the question is is by sending them to different parts of the world. And everywhere they go, they find different problems. They have different people. I work in a lot of historical figures, and and so you know, so. This one, um, <coughs> this one, I I actually had not made a special trip to Paris deliberately for research for this one, so I had to sort of scramble around the back of my head thinking. Now I've been there and we've done this and I remember that and so, um, but part of it is is also in the south, which is closer to the area that that I met you in another time and. Um, in near Lyon, so yeah, which was wonderful. So the timeline for the Mary Russells is not straightforward. It, you know, they move around in time. So occasionally we're in, you know, we go backwards. Sometimes we're forwards. What year are we actually in in the Landers days? Well, the, the the contemporary part of it goes. It's now up to September 1925. 
the two of them met in April 1915. Um, the first book, Beekeeper's Apprentice, went up to 1919. And then starting in about the third one, about the fourth one, I don't remember. Anyway, start, starting at a certain point, you, you, you start cramming them in together. So there's like eight books in a year because, you know, Holmes is in his 60s and you don't want to waste too much time. So, um, so he's, uh, yeah, so, so we're, we're moving through rapidly through 1925. I think we've had seven books so far, so yeah, far in you the can, year. You can also, you can always go backwards, too. I mean, you know, you've established that. I you, you don't mostly, have to go forward. Mostly when I've had backwards parts, it's been a part of the book, and then it's met something that is in the contemporary timeline. So, so this one, you go quite a way back. Yeah. Yeah, so this one goes back to, as I said, the 1830s with this mysterious person who is writing this journal that, uh, that Russell finds and is somehow tied in with the, with the Verne family. So. so where we are is that we are in Irene Adler's home, in, although she's no longer there because she died, right? Right, but anyway, um, so we are in her home south of Paris, and um, Damien... Sherlock Holmes' son with Irene Adler, a thing that... Which will come to a sh as a shock for those of you who don't know my books. Yes, yes. Yes, right. Yes. Sherlock this Holmes is, had this a... This is a Laurie King edition to the Holmes canon. dalliance right. with, with, uh, with Irene Adler, the woman, as uh, he right. called her. But that was after Irene Adler. Um, we met her in, in uh, Conan Doyle. She went off and got married to somebody, but then her husband died, and she came back, and she and Holmes had a liaison uh, that resulted in her becoming pregnant and then she didn't tell Holmes you know I, for reasons that you found adequate and the rest of us might not but anyway there we are um, I, I make no excuses for my <laughs> fictional characters <laughs> that's right but anyway she has now died and Damien the son and his uh, fiance because he um, has now do we know a lot about her? Are, are you going to do a book just about her? Because, I mean, you could. No, she she showed up in um, God of the Hive. Yeah, God of the Hive. And, uh, you know, basically, Holmes, Holmes needed a doctor because Damien had been shot. And so he sort of more or less kidnapped this young woman doctor <laughs> and said, there's somebody for you to treat. And... and and she ended up staying with Damien. Uh, why, I don't know. But um, it seemed a good idea at the time. What do you mean you don't know? I, I you know, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, a lot of the women in these books who do things that you think, really? <laughs> you know, so why anyway. not push them overboard instead? So anyway, Holmes and Russell, who has had an unfortunate accident with her foot. A very convenient Unfortunate accident. Yes, yes. So staged entirely by you, yeah. as far as I yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had to change it because my first draft had her trip over a dog, and one of my beta readers pointed out that she had tripped over a child. No, it was a child. It was a child, and that I that um, she had caught a cold from some children and cursed them in the last book. So I, you know, I had to I had to take the kids off and make it that she tripped over a dog instead. So. On so a slippery street somewhere. Where was it? Berlin in, or somewhere? In, in Berlin, yes. Right. Yes. All right. So, so she's hobbling along, and they arrive. Um, at Damien is now living in his mother's house, and he has a daughter. 
um, from the wife that also she she's died because divorce wasn't all that easy back then. Well, she she uh, or she's not with us anyway. Yes, she she died in the God of the Hive because right. of her. That was good planning. If you wanted to bring in a new person, you know. <laughs> you think I knew what I was doing, mm -hmm. wouldn't you? <laughs> Well, we like to think some of it's intentional. Anyway, there's nobody there. So Holmes and Russell arrive in what was Irene Adler's longtime home. And Mary Russell finds what? Well, finds this journal um, and starts because, uh, you know, she's sitting there with a sore foot, so she might as well do something. And she starts pulling this journal apart. And, um, and, and it, you know, as, as, you kind of expect in a mystery story it's tied in with the bigger story so yes if if when you're reading through it you think why is this journal in here it needs to be there <laughs> so it's kind of in code if i remember right yeah yeah she needs to she needs to decrypt it right but also present is wherever it went somebody must have the zoetrope somewhere out there. there oh it's right over here yeah. all right Thank you very much, sir. All right. So explain to us how this is relevant to the book. Yeah. And the obviously, this is a plastic reproduction, yeah. and it was not the one that they found, yeah. Mary found. Yeah. Zoe. Uh, Zoe. Okay. <laughs> now I'm, now I'm doing it. it. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Barbara wanted. The Zoe trophy that threw me. I just yeah, wanted exactly. to abbreviate. Yes. My, she wanted me to, to bring, um, y you know, the exact replica of the one that appears in there. And it's, I. I, no, I don't have one. Um, but Actually, I'm impressed that there's even a plastic reproduction. Mm -hmm. I mean, you yeah. know. There's several. Are there? Yeah. I, so I've if any of you actually looked up, or you will now go home and look up Zoe Trophy yeah. at Amazon.com yeah. or something and see what you can find. And they come with different little strips of paper, and um, this brand comes with some that have blanks, so you can make your own little things. But basically, a zoetrope has images in it that... There are slight changes from the beginning to the middle, and then it goes back to the beginning. And so in the, um, in the journal, whoever his, is writing this journal, she uses the chapters as images because it gives a picture of her life at the time. So she will have an image, and then she will describe the scene that it comes from. And so that the first one that you see is when she's very small, she's four years old, and she sees her mother um, weeping on the doorstep while she is being carried away from her mother and the house um, by a man that she knows vaguely. And, um, and, and you know, Russell obviously thinks um, the worst of this and uh, that she's this poor child is being kidnapped and sold into slavery or whatever. Um, I, I will reassure you that's not quite the story. So don't don't worry. If you come across that, I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> no but trafficking in this book. Yeah, no, right? this is no 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 white slavery in this book, as they used to call it in the 20s. Um, but um, but each of these images show this girl's life over a period of time at key points in her life, and they. They have it's as if they were on a sheet of you know a strip of paper that each one shows similar things but slightly different so that it 
the overall picture changes and moves and comes around back to more or less where it starts. Um, so that's, that's the kind of, the structure of the book is patterned on the zoetrope. You have a great time with Russell, sidelined as she is with her foot injury, in a house where they, there's nobody there. Um, although that's not true because there is a caretaking family there. Right. And so where is Damien? And you, don't, you don't want Russell to cook for herself, do you? <laughs> Excellent point. Well, um, right. And Holmes, of course, as far as I can tell, doesn't actually cook or generally even eat. <laughs> He seems to enjoy it, but not not focus on it. But right. yeah, but that, you know that was one of those things. And then when we were playing with titles, it's always that's always a fun conversation with your edit editor, where you give her a title and she doesn't like it, and so or you can't use it because zoetrope is something that is involved in the film industry, and yeah, so I you know, so I we kind of went round and round and the, the ladies dance, and I said, well, there isn't any lady dancing, so we can't have a lady dancing, and we. Anyway, so we ended up with the key zeroing in on the lantern, and I like the idea of it dancing and so. so. What's the illumination? Is it electric? There's a candle in the middle of it. There's a candle. Yeah, right. so if you picture kind of a cross between something like this and, you know, those German um, things with the candles and the, f the little fan on top that goes around that, um, that, that turns the carousel, uh, kind of a cross between the two of those. So if you have the uh, fan uh, the fan thing in the middle and the candle underneath that turns this around, um, that's that's what it is. So It's a sobering thought to think that the mouse came out of copyright this year. And, you know, think how far we've come from when Walt Disney first, you know, did an animated Mickey Mouse thing. Many of you have probably seen it. Um, you know, and, and then you have to go back to something like the zoetrope and think about moving images. Um. Yeah, the zoetrope was was around for quite a while. It wasn't um, invented in this country until the late 19th century. Um, the, you know, somebody invented it and started marketing it. But it was, I mean, it's been in China and various other parts of the world for quite a while. So um, various forms of it. Um, that's a different different kind of it called a praxinoscope, but that one is structured differently, and so that was it was too complicated, so it was a zoetrope instead. And of course, if it's a candle and you've got paper moving around, you know, there's always the possibility of a serious conflagration. But oh, yeah. anyway, that doesn't happen to Russell. No. So, um, and so what's going on? And what's going on in this book is that we learn a lot about Sherlock Holmes's family and his background that. Fortunately, Conan Doyle, as I mentioned earlier, didn't fill in. So it gives Laurie a license to tell us things that um, we didn't previously know, right? It's, I mean, it really is fascinating how vivid that character is, considering how few backstory details you're given. Um, and, you know, as a writer, I find it a, a really valuable lesson that we feel we know Sherlock Holmes. Well, listen, let's, not, let's not discount the value of image because if Sidney Paget had not done those amazing, you know, drawings for the Strand magazine, and then if we hadn't had the movies come along, you know, Basil Rathbone and all the rest of it, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is the most recent one. You know, I have to, I mean, I 
didn't love all of them. But if any, did any of you watch some of the Benedict? Didn't you think that the three patch problem was truly just brilliant? I mean, that was that was the thing I remember the most. Um, you know, when he's about to do something and he's trying to quit smoking and so he has nicotine patches and, you know, suddenly he has a three-patch problem, which I thought was just the most glorious riff on the three-pipe problem, you know. Um, but I do think, I do think that it was Paget whose illustrations really rooted this image of Holmes in everybody's mind, you know, the deerstalker and the aquiline profile and all the rest of it. Um, if if it hadn't yeah. published with illustrations, I don't think it would be so vivid. Yeah, and I think that's why we tend to think of him as as an older man from the beginning, because um, Sidney Paget um, patterned the image of Holmes on his own older brother, uh, even from the very early stories. Whereas when you first, I mean, when when Holmes and Watson first meet, Holmes is probably younger than Watson, and Watson can't be later than in his late 20s. No, but he's a veteran of the Afghan War, yeah. so he has yeah. to be somewhat older. Yeah, but but chronologically, um, y you know, it's not, not that much. He hasn't been gone that long, and, and so he's probably not yet 30. And most of the images of Holmes you see are a man in his 40s, whereas when they met, he probably was 20, I mean, it might even have been younger. I mean, depending on whose chronology you go by. My, mine, mine is not the standard chronology. <laughs> and so how much older was Mycroft when we finally found out about him? Mycroft is seven years older. He's his seven years older brother. And there's really no mention of their parents or anything, is there? They're country squires. Right. And all that means is that they, they don't have a title and they live on land in the country somewhere. So... You have a license to fill in background. I, I take full advantage of it, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, you see his country home in the, in the short story that I wrote about Mary Russell's marriage, um, where they, they have to sneak into the, into the house um, a, out in the... It's not, I don't think it's Gloucestershire. Do you remember what... Can, I don't think it's specified, but it's somewhere... Somewhere, sort of in that Gloucestershire, Berkshire area, that um, that they have this 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 country estate that um, has has somehow been wrested from the Holmes brothers um, w with with actually their permission because they really don't want it. Stately Holmes, right? Laurie and I have had a long history over the title Stately Holmes. I was so pissed at her when she was not able to use that in a book that... I, I finally But you finally did. Story. I know. Yay, yeah. she finally did use it. But I always thought that was the perfect title for a Sherlock Holmes story, right? Stately Holmes. But anyway, um, no Stately Holmes for the Holmes family. But So we don't really know anything much about... Um, we know he has a brother, but we don't know really anything about his parents or his mother or his father. And so Laurie, Laurie fills all that in um, in this book, which is really fascinating. We're not going to tell you any more than that, but it's great to give him that kind of family background. You know, it's interesting because the first few Russell books that I did, um, I, I, I really used Holmes as a completely supporting actor. And so you didn't even want, you know, it was a Mary Russell book. You did not want Sherlock Holmes even in the title. I yeah, I always made sure that they put a, a Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes. There was one book 
where after I'd given cover approval, somebody switched it, and I was really mad. It was really angry. Yeah, but I mean, so, it was originally going to be Mary Russell's story, yeah, and Holmes was like a secondary character. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, these were the, the the stories of this young woman who, you know, who became this extraordinary had this extraordinary mind, and this was her training and growth period. Um, but about half a dozen books in, I I started to become more interested in Holmes, and it was probably around the time when I was doing locked rooms. With locked rooms, you go back to San Francisco where she grew up, and you you discover that a lot of her memories are wrong. So here's this amazingly competent woman that we've come to know and love over half a dozen books who suddenly is revealed as an unreliable narrator. And in order to compensate for that, I had to let Holmes have a, a voice in the thing because she would see something that she remembered clearly and interpreted it this way. And yet he would see the same thing and think, that, that's, not, that's not right. So that I needed to have a, a sort of the Greek chorus in the background of, here's Russell's remembering, but that you also have somebody who is seeing things very differently. And at that point, I started letting him have literally a voice in the books. He has various chapters that are his, not in first person. He's, he's in third. But I, I think that that kind of woke up the possibilities of this character to me as a character and looking at him and thinking, he's obviously hugely influential on this young woman, but what, what influence would she have had on him? I mean, if you, if you kind of think about it, here's a man in his 50s who unexpectedly comes across this young woman who impresses the hell out of him and becomes his apprentice pretty much despite himself. And the two of them form a partnership in all kinds of subtle ways. Um, and the, the person that Conan Doyle just wrote out of the 20th century, starting with the eve of the Great War, there aren't any stories that Conan Doyle told that are set after the Great War because he didn't see a, ho a home for Sherlock Holmes in the, in the country. He could not envision um, Holmes dealing with this hugely changed Britain of during the Great War and, and after. I mean, it was just an entirely different place from Victorian England. And, and Arthur Conan Doyle's response to that was, well, this, any stories I write are going to be set before that. And I thought, that's selling him short. That really is assuming that this extraordinary man, Sherlock Holmes, could not shape a new personality to fit a new set of needs. That he wouldn't find challenges in this new 20th century and, and rise to meet them. And so Starting about then, I think I, I really allowed him to begin developing as a person. And you see him, like the, the, the last book, um, the one that was set in Transylvania, there's a lot of inner meditation on his own, um, his own attitudes towards women and his assumptions and thinking that maybe, you know, maybe he should try and change. <laughs> 
And and with this, so with this one, that's kind of the background. You've reached this point where he is, he is rethinking his assumptions, and and so his own background is one of those things that is dealt with in this book, as you say, True, without but, giving spoilers. But he but doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't know what his real background is, so that's part of it. Let's go back to the Beekeeper's Apprentice and remember that Mary was only fifteen, and he was, you know, so you couldn't. It, it took a while before any kind of a relationship beyond mentor, you know, master-mentor could develop, or, um, you know. So how old, when we got to the point where they were envisioning themselves as a couple, or at least Mary was, you know, how old was she by then? Well, it's the, the, end, the end of the second book, Monstrous Regiment of Women. Right. Um, and that would have been, um, I mean, she's, she's, just, she's just turning 21. She got from 15 to 21 in two books? Yeah. Ah, okay. It's been a long time. Well, Beekeeper covers four years because 1919 is the end of it. And um, uh, and then she's at Oxford in the, the you know, anyway, yeah. It's, um, but you didn't originally intend it to be, you know, a romance or whatever between them. <laughs> no. Did, did, did I write a romance? <laughs> No, you um, know what I mean. No, I, I think, I mean, at a certain point you have to sort of make a, make a decision when you have two characters who are wired for each other. Um, do, you, do you make them just uh, partners and allow them to, to just work together? Um, or do you allow them to be in a relationship as well? And I, I thought, well... For one thing, the 20s is a time when a woman and a man would not be allowed to just kind of travel anywhere and do all the cases that they do and the rest of it. I mean, that would have been just unacceptable. Um, and for another, the, the Great War basically changed the, the way an entire generation looked at marriage. Um, that you have, you know, all of the young women from age 17 up to 35, who normally would have so many men, I mean, basically their equal number of men to choose from, suddenly all the men were gone. I mean, half the young men that who came back from the war were not in any shape to actually marry. Um, the number of young men who died who were broken in all kinds of ways meant that you either didn't marry or you married differently. And and so I think that it for that period of the twenties, you found a lot of relationships that would not have been not uh, acceptable but expected in previous times. And you combine that with the fact that my husband was thirty years older than me and it didn't really seem weird. <laughs> you know, look looking back, if you had told me so there's this story about this 15-year-old girl and this 54-year-old man who meet, and then they get married. I would have thought, oh, creepy. <laughs> but somehow it just doesn't. I mean, I've never had anyone say to me, it really creeped me out. So if, if one of you is truly creeped out, come and talk to me about it. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I, I remember that you really 
talked about the first couple of books as Mary Russell books, and you were pretty adamant they were not Sherlock Holmes books. And then gradually we moved. I mean, we've been doing this together since the Beekeeper's Apprentice, so, you know, the evolution of all this is pretty clear. Well, that's because, I mean, Sherlock Holmes pastiches are a thing. And, you know, there's uh, bookstores have whole shelves of Sherlock Holmes pastiches, and they are stories that the author will take Sherlock Holmes and, you know, Dr. Watson and all the others and, and sort of insert them into a, a, an adventure and then sort of dust them off and put them back where they were. Because if they're during the Baker Street times, they have to get back into where they were afterwards. So you can't have huge changes in their personalities or, you know, I amazing injuries that affect no, them I or agree. whatever. What you had was so exotic locations, either Minneapolis or Tibet, <laughs> uh, both of which, you know, I recall. And you had a wonderful time with Mrs. Hudson um, a few books back. You know, I thought that was a, a really interesting story. Um, so you, yeah. you have been able to do some. But in this one, you're really going backwards, and we're looking at Sherlock Holmes' parents yep. and um, and also his, his people. People. His, where right. do his people come from? And my since my husband Doyle used to ask that question, which apparently is really not the thing to do. There was, do you remember a, a summer or two ago, one of Camilla's ladies-in-waiting asked a British woman uh, where where her family came from? And she said, well, they came from whatever city it was in England, Bristol or whatever. And she said, no, I mean, where did they come from? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. But for my husband, that was the thing to ask. You met anyone, and it didn't really matter if they were black or white or, you know. What, w you ask them where their people are from because that's how you knew who they were. He was Anglo-Indian. So if you, didn't, if you didn't know where somebody's family came from, you didn't know who they were. Well, this is not a discussion that we have anymore. <laughs> this, is, this is a thing that you don't ask where somebody's family comes from. But in terms of this book, you, you do. So. so Russell is, I mean, sorry, Holmes is off trying to figure out where Damien might be. Um, and Russell, laid up with her foot, is looking at the zoetrope and decoding the diary. Sort of remind me of the Voynich manuscript, except that Russell's actually able to crack it, whereas nobody yet has ever figured out what the Voynich manuscript, whether it means anything yeah, at was, all. I was so <laughs> pleased that I could I could drop mention of the Voynich manuscript in there because it was around, and I thought, oh, good. So like, it's those things that you that you find yourself writing, and then you think, oh hell, can I put that in? You quickly shift over to Google, and you think, oh yay, I can do that. <laughs> Yeah. Those little Easter eggs. They V O Y N I C H. If you want to look it up, and it's yeah. a, it remains a puzzle to this very moment, right? And it yeah. may be, it may be some fabulous con, <laughs> you know, con C O N that mm -hmm. um, that will never make sense because it never made sense. But maybe it'll turn out to be real. We don't know. And if it hadn't been bought by Voynich. It would have gone into the um, Vatican Library, and we probably never would have heard to of be it seen again. again. Yeah, I no. mean, probably nobody would ever hear from, hear about it again. Right so. now, code cracking is so much fun. I mean, you remember the Da Vinci Code, or you could read up about the Rosetta Stone, which is one of the great exercises ever in um, in how you know languages and so forth are broken. But anyway, we can't tell you a whole lot more. But there's um, basically a huge backstory here for Sherlock Holmes and his family. Um, and a character that, you know, it'll be interesting, your reactions to the character and the decisions that the character makes will be interesting. I bet I bet all of us read it differently um, and, sim and either agree or disagree or whatever, but um, 
It's not, I, I don't know that we'll find unanimous agreement with this character. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's decisions that are made, obviously without giving spoilers, there's decisions that are made by some of the characters that are, are decisions that would offend many of us. I mean, you, you, I as a mother have certain expectations of myself and when it comes to my kids. But you kind of think, is that necessarily something that everybody needs to do? So, yeah, so I think that um, the, the, the decisions made are, <laughs> are, are one of those areas that when, it, when a book club reads it, that this will be one of their sessions is talking about w whether, right or whether right or wrong, whether justified or not. And Laurie had an opportunity to write an, an ending, which most people like, but has had at least one virulent attack from... Um, from a reader, so An another early thing, reader, which yep. I found fascinating. That I just I loved the book until I got I hated the ending. And you think, I wish you'd said a little more, because I just you know, and I was I was sort of tempted to respond and say what, it, but I thought I, I don't know. So we also get to go to Paris, which is really fun, um, right? Yeah. And there's um, you know a certain amount of you know French food, French drink, all that good stuff. Um, and artists. So, you know, there's a whole, we haven't really talked that much about the artist family, so you might want to fill that in before we give away too much. Yeah, well, I think um, I think that the Damien, uh, whom you met in a book, a number of books ago, um, was, he's a surrealist artist, and the, the Paris in the 20s is a time of a lot of interesting artistic change and in fact it's i think i think the um the the 1925 exposition uh, the art deco exposition has just closed i think that was at the summer um and and so there's all this rich artistic stuff but i i kept finding myself you know s being drawn into it and then thinking that you can only write so many books in one book <laughs> <laughs> and and so I'd say I'd cut, sort of start snipping away and thinking yeah, let's just keep it right here and we'll just we'll just mention you know Picasso and and and, and the rest of them so um but I I think that um yeah yeah to have to have uh, somebody who's um part of the part of the artistic community in Paris sort of it says it all in the 1920s which was an astonishing time yeah all kinds of changes, all kinds. It was kind of like, you know, Vienna before the war because there was all kinds of wonderful stuff happening yeah. there. And then the war came along and put, you know, we had Klimt and we had all kinds of um, architecture and great stuff in Vienna. And then the war went. Yeah. And then we had the 20s and, you know, but then we got the 30s and that was sort of the end of much of, you know, yeah. the creativity once again. So that the one that I'm working on now, that <coughs> the next Russell book, um, it's part of the one of the opening scenes is going to be at the wedding because you know the the reason that Holmes and and Russell are going to this village in Paris is because there's a wedding coming up and so um, so but I'm going to get to the wedding and I now have to decide how many weirdos are coming to this wedding so uh, <laughs> we're taking nominations here. <laughs> <laughs> is Mycroft going to travel? 
Or is oh. he always going to remain? Oh kind dear, of Mycroft. No, I don't right, think running the British Mycroft. government in yeah, the background. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's he, Mycroft is a is, has become a very problematic character in the. <laughs> he has a, too much power for um, for Russell's comfort. So right. So let's talk for a moment about back to the garden. I was pretty depressed when I got back to the garden and thought about it and recognized that 1972 has actually become historical fiction, <laughs> which is like halfway through my own life. And I thought, shit, you know, how did that happen? Um, because really, when I opened the store in 1989, historical fiction, the bar was like the 1920s, you know, and I mean, you had to remember Franny Fisher and Franny Fisher, when, when those first three Franny Fishers published by Bantam um, in the, I think it was right around then, nobody, you know, they never caught on or whatever it is, but when um, when they finally got redone, you know, in Australia, they had become really historical fiction by then, and so they did, they did brilliantly. But anyway, I really thought a lot about, um, I mean, you know, I graduated from Stanford in 1962, and here we're in 1970-something, you know, nearby, and I thought, Seriously? This is historical fiction? I really was pained. But um, nonetheless, if you, no, it's okay. I mean, listen, be glad. I've lived a long time. But, um, you know, 50 years is kind of historical fiction. I mean, you know, it's not entirely clear where the line is drawn, but I think you can kind of go with 50 years. But just as in everything else, I mean, if you really look back when historical fiction was truly hot, um, in the late 80s and the early 1990s, it was because the whole fashion for like Samuel Schellebagger and Thomas Custain and all the rest of it had passed. And we got Ellis Peters writing A Morbid Taste for Bones. We got Umberto Eco, which was the big one. And so people who wrote historical fiction decided to write historical mysteries. So, I mean, it was everywhere. It was Egypt, it was Rome, it was, you know, but there were only some periods that worked. So you could have Elizabethan England, but nobody wanted to write about Restoration England. It was like, you know, we somehow mysteriously went from the 1500s to the 1800s. And then David Liss wrote a really brilliant book that won the Edgar, the name of which I can't remember, um, in 1720 about the South Sea bubble. And then all of a sudden, Georgian, you know, kind of appeared on the horizon. But there are, there are tracks of, of centuries where nobody wants to write about them or places. I mean, if Egypt, why not Babylon, you know, or whatever? Um, there are these kind of fads in, um, or whatever. You know, you get Rome, but you hardly ever get Greece, for example. Uh, in, in crime fiction, there are other books about Greece, but most crime fiction, if you know, Stephen Saylor and all that ilk was Rome. And so, you know, in this book, you're balancing Victorian with the 1920s because, you know, we go all the way back to the 1830s and then we're all the way up to 1925. So you're embracing, you know, periods that are historical but have had more interest. Victorian has probably got more in terms of historical mystery, anyway, than any other period. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, but as I said, what one thing that I found really interesting was that the difference in, in a country like India, the difference in day-to-day -day life between the 1830s and the 1930s is uh, especially... The Industrial Revolution hadn't really rolled over them, it had didn't, it? didn't, no. yeah. I mean, uh, it... Obviously, there were changes, but it was... They were small things like 
um, instead of having whale oil candles, you would have kerosene um, and, and electricity. Electricity didn't get into a lot of India, you know, until well into the 20th century. And, um, you know, it, I mean, it's really interesting to, to deal with a country that, that changes a lot in some ways and not at all in others. You know, we can look back, think about, you know, electrification in America only happened in the 1930s as part of Roosevelt's, you know, rural electrification project. And I remember Jackie Winsford telling me that her parents in the 1950s lived in a house with no indoor plumbing. You know, I mean, it it it, it's, it was that slow to change a lot of stuff. The house that Noel and his first wife bought in Oxford in 1967 had gaslight. Yeah. I'll and the it. toilet was in the back. Yeah, Out, outside. One down, as yeah. we said. No, it was an old lady who owned the house, but he she'd lived in it since the '30s and n never saw a reason to change. So, yeah. But um, there we go. Right. Anyway, back to the garden. Back we to the garden. as I tend to do. Yeah. Um, so you are going to write another book with those characters. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very fond of Raquel Lang. I, I, for those of you who only know the Russell books, I also wrote a series. Um, with Kate Martinelli in it, set in San Francisco in the starting in the 90s. Um, and um, I, I like the Kate character, but I got sidetracked into other things and standalones and the rest of it. And by the time you, by the time 15 years has gone by and you haven't had a new episode, you have to have a reason to, <laughs> to either have the new episode or else you have to sort of pretend that there wasn't 15 years. and So I thought it was just too much for me, I thought. So also the character herself of Kate Martinelli, I think, was very much of the 90s. I mean, even though the last of the books was set in 2004. Um, you know, when you first meet Kate in the 1993 book, she's closeted. And to have a closeted lesbian cop in 2024 would be odd, to say the least. I mean, nowadays, especially in some parts of the country, you could see being closeted again because of the way politics is going. But for the most part, and especially if you're setting it in San Francisco, it would just, it would be absurd. So I kind of wanted to update character of Kate Martinelli and and yet write a similar kind of thing and so what I came up with and that this makes it sound like I was doing it very deliberately but I looking at the what the back of my head was doing um, I I wanted a sort of modern version of Kate Martinelli and that's where um, that's where Raquel Lang came from I mean when you meet her she's um, she's in the cold case because she's had an injury, and so she's in, in cold working in cold cases. But the one that she's working with is Kate's old partner, Al Hawken. And so there's a sort of tie-in together in there. Um, but, but Kate is a very different... Kate, Kate and Raquel are very different people. Um, and Ra Raquel is, um, is very distinctly neurodivergent. She has her own way of doing things. And... and so yeah, I'd, I'm I'm looking forward to writing another one um, probably next year. I am too. Where are you going to set it? Because you were in a famous garden, which I, you know, when I lived there, um, I recognized. Yeah, um, back to the garden is set partly in 
a fictionalized version of Filoli. Any of you have been to there? At the, it's an open open gardens in uh, south of San Francisco. Um, and a cold case that was based in uh, the 1970s that uh, a body is found on Filoli. Um, and I, but I think that what I will do is keep keep the idea of working cold cases. I like the idea of her working cold cases, um, either for the police department or outside. I haven't really decided yet. But I think that the one that she needs to work on is one of her own. I think Raquel needs to needs to solve a cold case that is personal. Because she's not, she's not somebody who you, you find out much about. And she, we, she needs an excuse to really open up to us, the reader. Uh, Sherlock Holmes has marked you, or Conan Doyle, right? You gotta have the impersonal detective. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Right, all right. Well, we've talked a long time. Sorry, I've always had a good time talking to Laurie. So how about questions from any of you? Microphone. I, I do occasionally um, reread Conan Doyle. I don't reread my own stuff if I don't have to. I sometimes I have to, but yeah, I I will occasionally pick up uh, I pick up the Conan Doyles. Not so much the later ones, but the the early ones. I think have a lot of really interesting energy to them, and quite often if I'm setting one that draws on a particular story, I'll reread it to see how he treated that particular that particular tale, but. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 very active and vivid. Um, I mean, they're very masculine sorts of stories. They're hearty. They're hearty Victorian stories. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I I have a lot of respect for Arthur Conan Doyle as a writer. It's a good thing that he didn't have a particularly brisk practice, because it was because he had all this free time in his medical practice that. He started writing. Well, he was what an ophthalmologist, wasn't he? Twice. Yeah, he was a general doctor, and then he specialized. He took an, a special course in eye treatment, and it still he still didn't manage to really make a living off of it. Um, right. So he was he was not a successful doctor. <laughs> well, that's a lucky thing for all of us, right? Also, the Strand Magazine was a wonderful. You know, Charles Dickens. Um, all kinds of people wrote for magazines and wrote serially. Um, and it was a great venue for, you know, because you could write a short story. Although, truth is, it's harder to write a short story in many respects than it is a full-length novel. Yeah, and I think that's that may be one of the reasons why we have so many um, adaptations, so many movie adaptations of the Sherlock Holmes stories, is because it the sh the short story is much more um, much more easily adapted to a movie than a novel. With a novel, d you you have to you have so much that you have to leave out um, that it just I, it's very difficult. With a short story, most most movie adaptations from fiction are are from short stories. Or short novels like Elmore Leonard. No. Right. Anybody else? Oh, we've just exhausted you all. I'm sorry. Jacob, do we have any any from the audience? Virtual audience? We have a, a person who came in the back door who's trapped. Ma'am, you really do need to go around to the other side of the store. <laughs> All right. Well, she's, she's trapped back here. So. <laughs> she is. She's stuck and children. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Wait. Joanne asked if there's going to be a follow-up to the back of the garden. We were just talking about that, right? Yeah, that's the one we were just talking about, which will be in 2026, I guess, because the one I'm writing now is another is Russell and Holmes number 19, and that'll be 2025. And so. we haven't mentioned that this is year 30 since the Beekeeper's Apprentice published. Lord, who can believe it? I know. Um, and how many years since the first Kate Martinelli? Yeah, Kate turned 30 last year, Russell this year. So if any of you are going to any of the crime conferences this year, I'll mention that there's going to be four Beekeeper's Apprentice celebration events, and each one of them, the, the first one is next Saturday in Santa Cruz. If any of you happen to be in Santa Cruz, come by. Um, but the, the other three are in Seattle and uh, Bethesda in April and in Nashville in, uh, in Labor August. Day. Labor Day August. weekend, basically. Labor Day, right yeah. before Labor Day weekend. Yeah. Right. So, so I'll be with Larry in um, Seattle yeah. in um, April 10th, actually, yeah. to talk about some stuff. But I think yeah. it's great that Lori's doing these celebrations. So um, if you happen to be in another part of the country, you can watch them. Right. Is anybody? No? We're all done? Okay. Well, in that case, Ori, thank you very much. It's have, been a pleasure. more so wine and cheese? <laughs> yep. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.